Hello and welcome, and thank you for listening to the Ethnomediologue podcast. My name is Brett, and this is episode number one, titled, Whose Cultural Heritage? Welcome to our first episode. Thank you for being here. I'm very excited to explore this space with you. I'm excited to share ideas about the media in our lives. Really, the primary goal of the Ethnomedia Log is to investigate power and representation in media, specifically in the structure, scope, and the ideology of media narratives. I like to call it media with a capital M, or mediology. Really, it's the study and analysis of specific aspects of media narratives, as well as how and why those narratives are created, used, and exchanged. I know most of the time when we think of the word media, the primary definition tends to be mass media or news media, the means of constructing and distributing narratives within various communities, and then more broadly across geographical or cultural groups. Since mass media implies singular narratives that can be widely distributed, we can acknowledge the power that centralizing or polarizing news and other media has in shaping our understanding of narratives and our understanding of cultural reality. Who holds the power over constructing the media narrative? Whose voices are included and excluded from broadcasts and archives? Who benefits most from the platforms that control media distribution? Generally speaking, media emerges from culture as a means to express culture. It is consumed by culture where it shapes and reinforces cultural expectations. So I'm interested in this connection, the interconnectedness of the way that we share our media narratives. Whose voices dominate media narratives? Who oversees, curates, archives, and facilitates access to media? And who is or is not represented by various media? So my goal here is to explore the heart and ideology of media behind the curtain, so to speak, in the digital age of globalization and capitalism. We're getting started in this first episode by engaging intangible cultural heritage. But before we explore our main focus for today, Let's begin with a segment I will be calling Retrospect, a look at being alive in media for the last two weeks. In the news at the end of January, climate activist Vanessa Nakate, founder of the Rise Up movement, attended the Davos World Economic Forum along with several other environmental activists to address governmental and business leaders regarding the climate crisis. In report on climate activists in attendance on Friday, Nakate was cropped from a photo released by the Associated Press. The other four activists who were included in the initially posted photo were white, and the photo featured the widely publicized activist Greta Thunberg. Quoting the Associated Press article on Twitter, Nakate tweeted, Why did you remove me from the photo? I was part of the group. Hundreds of people replied to Nakate's tweet, communicating shock, anger, and calling for the Associated Press to publicly apologize. The Guardian quoted Nakate as stating, When I saw the photo, I only saw part of my jacket. I was not on the list of participants. None of my comments from the press conference were included. It was like I wasn't even there. Nakate later posted a video on social media describing how the situation had affected her and had thrust her into a conversation about racism and inclusion in media. She stated, This is the first time in my life that I understood 
the definition of the word racism. Africa is the least emitter of carbons, but we are the most affected by the climate crisis. But you erasing our voices won't change anything. Nakate also noted after she spoke out about the photo that several other climate activists had experienced similar marginalization but had remained silent. Jamie Margolin, founder of the climate action group Zero Hour, commented, Racism, classism, and the erasure of marginalized voices isn't new. A photo cropout is an easy way to describe it, but it's really a metaphorical cropout from the narrative of climate science in general. Jamie's comments in particular stuck out to me and got me thinking about how media representation both stems from and reinforces cultural assumptions. The metaphorical cropout stems from the systemic racism that contributes to whose voices take up the literal and conceptual authority within the global conversation. Nakate herself addresses this quite directly in her currently pinned tweet that states, The Amazon burns and the whole world talks about it. California burns and the whole world talks about it. Congo rainforest burns and a young girl talks about it. People are actually dying in Africa, but if these news companies don't talk about the fires in Africa... Nakate certainly isn't the only representative of issues relating to Africa or the climate, but her voice has been and continues to be vital to raising awareness regarding the global climate crisis and its disproportionately drastic effects on Africa and its peoples. Yet, her platform is far less visible than that of people like Greta Thunberg. I think it is worth exploring why this continues to be the case. Vanessa spoke out about her erasure last week in an article published on the Thomas Reuters Foundation News website. This erasure of our voices and our suffering happens constantly, every day. It is good that my story is getting attention now, but we also need to turn this attention toward other activists and communities who are suffering from extreme weather driven by climate change. We need media to tell these stories, to drive the ambitious climate action we need from global decision makers. And we need global leaders to hear us. You can follow Vanessa Nakate on Twitter at Vanessa underscore Vash. That's at Vanessa with two S's underscore V-A-S-H. Now I'd like to highlight an artist this week. If you haven't heard of David Chavanus yet, I want to take a moment to highlight his work. I met David briefly at the last SEM National Conference and was shocked to discover that his brilliant paper presentation was scheduled for the last hour block on the final day of the conference, after most other conference attendees head home. David's art and ideas are profound, and I think more people should experience what he's sharing. He uses sound performance to explore histories and practices of race, gender, sexuality, and love. Here's an example of David's piece, For the Children, distributed on the Bodies Unfree EP in 2018. At the recently concluded Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting in Brussels, Mr. Holness was quoted as saying that the people of Jamaica are, quote, evolving on the issue of homosexuality. That statement has led many Jamaicans, including myself, to ask, how and when did we, the people of Jamaica, quote, evolve? 
From what I'm hearing on the ground, the PM's theory of evolution is being challenged by many persons asking similar questions to mine. What does Mr. Holness mean by, quote, evolve? And which Jamaicans, and how many, are, quote, evolving? You can learn more about David and his work on his website at dchavanes.com. That's D-C-H-A-V-A-N-N-E-S.com. Today's main focus is the concept of intangible cultural heritage. I want to explore what it is, where the concept comes from, who it applies to, and how the concept frames narratives of cultural identity. And I'll be interested in qualifying who benefits most from this concept. As we launch into these aspects of the concept of intangible cultural heritage, we should recognize that its existence in the global present is a byproduct of colonialism and globalized capitalism. I think we'll come back around to this idea again, considering our critical lens of analysis today, but for now, let's dig into the origins of the concept. Intangible cultural heritage was first qualified in conversations between 2001 and 2003 with the United Nations Educational Science and Cultural Organization, known as UNESCO, in direct contrast to defining and protecting what was deemed tangible cultural heritage, that is, the physical items, structures, and technologies created within a cultural group, UNESCO established a survey to explore ways to protect the status and existence of various oral histories, customs, beliefs, and intellectual properties within a cultural group. The survey yielded the Convention for the Safeguarding of Intangible Cultural Heritage, and that's since been referred to as the Convention or the 2003 Convention. Well, in many ways, the impetus of intangible cultural heritage emerged from a long-standing institutional fixation on the curation and study of tangible heritage the fetishized objects and symbols that serve globally as markers of cultural distinction. In other words, one of the clear ways the 2003 convention imagined intangible cultural heritage is through this dependent lens as it was connected to tangible culture. So in a way, the intangible heritage served as the context for the existence of tangible culture, a link of sorts between people and the inherent meaningfulness of the tangible objects that serve as symbols of cultural identity. But from within the convention, intangible cultural heritage more broadly began to stand on its own as a marker of distinctiveness and cultural identity. Essentially, the dances, music performances, oral histories, fictions, languages, and poetic forms, and similar ephemeral forms of expression from within a group, as much as they are not tangible, they serve as the direct way we articulate and distinguish group identity. This is a metaphysical statement that suggests a unified human tapestry intricately woven within distinctive strands, a diverse fabric of existence qualified by both textual objects and subjective contexts. Some branches of anthropology and the entire field of ethnomusicology, for example, were born out of these scholarly interests in distinction and diversity. I have to admit, feeling somehow instinctively drawn to the openness of UNESCO's approach toward intangible cultural heritage in particular, while at the same time I'm baffled by what exactly is being communicated in its articulation. UNESCO's general definition of intangible cultural heritage states that it comprises the practices, representations, expressions, knowledge, skills, 
as well as the instruments, objects, artifacts, and cultural spaces associated therewith, that communities, groups, and in some cases individuals, recognize as a part of their cultural heritage. The convention's definition goes on to state, This intangible cultural heritage transmitted from generation to generation is constantly recreated by communities and groups in response to their environment, their interaction with nature and their history, and provides them with a sense of identity and continuity, thus promoting respect for cultural diversity and human creativity. The scope of this definition is... incredibly broad? Uh, essentially, this suggests that everything that people do falls under the definition of intangible heritage. If everything we do is intangible cultural heritage, what's the point of this category at all? Is, is UNESCO's scope for defining intangible cultural heritage really all-inclusive? So here's where the practice of qualifying intangible cultural heritage through UNESCO's lens reveals the assumptions and intentions of the program. The convention narrows its scope for what intangible cultural heritage is by stating that their specific focus only manifests in five domains. Oral traditions and expressions, including language as a vehicle of intangible cultural heritage, performing arts, social practices, rituals and festive events, knowledge and practices concerning nature and the universe, and, finally, traditional craftsmanship. In another portion of UNESCO's website, there's an article titled What is Intangible Cultural Heritage? This provides a somewhat deeper exploration of the concept, but unfortunately there is very little nuance or analysis here, and the article, in a way, kind of remystifies the concept, making it apply more broadly to anything that people express in exchange. The mystified and seemingly inclusive, or perhaps overly comprehensive, language of what intangible cultural heritage is seems to be in a fixed juxtaposition with five very specific aspects of cultural activity under scrutiny by the convention. So this is the definitive language that is used as the primary platform for participating nation-states who intend to be recognized by the organization through distinctive aspects of intangible cultural heritage that are used for their own representation. In other words, this is the focused definition by UNESCO of what intangible cultural heritage is. So who does this concept apply to? UNESCO's imagination of intangible cultural heritage was not created in a cultural vacuum, and we can recognize a presumed neutrality in the convention's approach that takes at face value many aspects of contemporaneous Western cultural heritage, particularly in our areas of ceremony, history, or industry that have become adopted as common day practices. In other words, if you look at the lists of intangible cultural heritage in UNESCO's site, the oral traditions, performing arts, social practices and rituals, knowledge of the universe, of nature, the traditional craftsmanship, they all seem focused on what has historically been called folklore. I didn't have to look very far into UNESCO's records to see the 1989 position on cultural traditions and folklore is directly influential over the 2003 convention's imagination of intangible cultural heritage. Its definition within the organization developed directly from conversations about folklore. It isn't as if UNESCO is somehow hiding this link between their earlier attention to folklore and the convention's framing of intangible cultural heritage since 2003. However, the definition of intangible cultural heritage has no overt links to folklore. There's no 
defining intangible cultural heritage transparently, stating something like, this is an idea that is an expansion of folklore studies. Their language here is carefully constructed as a meaningful departure from these past concepts, even though the framework is essentially the same. Folklore is a concept I've dedicated a lot of critique to, so it's likely that in future episodes of the Ethnomedia Log, I will revisit some of these ideas in more detail. But I think as we explore who intangible cultural heritage applies to, it's worth considering where the academic and broadly public interests in imagining a lore of folk comes from. The reduction of lore of folk is really a pursuit that has kind of been inseparable from Western scholarship since its inception. But generally speaking, the attention to the concept of the folk as a representation, or really a construction of collective identity, this emerged with the concept of nationalism, and it grew as a Eurocentric academic interest in the early days of the 19th century in the wave of increasing Eurocentric colonialism and imperialism. Investigating a group's lore was imagined to provide insights into their deeper nature, revealing truths about who a people are and, strangely, where they belong. It became something of a passion for 19th century authors, for example, to appropriate themes from rural locales or foreign regions. For musicians, the appropriation of folk music practices into the elite concert tradition of the day represented rugged nationalistic tendencies. The top-down fixation on the lore of folk within a nation-state, serving as the literal representation of a people's identity, operates exactly like UNESCO's definition of intangible cultural heritage. It reveals that the romantic assumptions behind the organization's ongoing goals haven't changed much beyond their choice of language since the days of expansive European imperialism. It also reveals that according to institutions like UNESCO, the lore of folk is what is most important in the distinctiveness of that group's identity. Now, I want to be clear here that I'm not suggesting that it is strange for lore to exist or for people to appreciate and identify with the culture and narratives that exist within their community awareness. Quite the opposite, in fact. I think creating and sharing narratives is one of the most powerful aspects of being human, and this is one of the primary reasons I'm creating this podcast. My critique here is how the lore of folk as an imagined category, is used to qualify a sort of outside-looking-in definition of a group of people within a region. The power for establishing these definitions remains at the level of the state apparatus, even despite many of the bylaws of the convention that define how intangible cultural heritage is recognized by the power of the General Assembly. And that General Assembly is a body of 24 representatives from various nation-states. Maybe it's obvious at this point that a United Nations organization would have a vested interest in perpetuating the power of the nation-state. But I think it helps to unpack the scope of intangible cultural heritage in this way in order to qualify the following statement. The concept of intangible cultural heritage perpetuates the conflation of diverse human communities into national identities, and it operates as a mode of control by the state apparatus. Driven by global capitalism, the resources of the state apparatus remain in the state and perpetuate the power of the state, even as the lore of folk is appropriated as the identity of the state. So then, who are the folk of folklore? The short answer here is that the folk are the people who create the cultural traditions, the people who articulate the meaningfulness of intangible cultural heritage, Yet, since the power of state-governed identity is qualified through lore, 
The folk are often directly defined through the expectations of the state. In the post-colonial world, there are numerous examples of how a dual identity exists among the people of a nation-state, wherein communities imagine themselves in a wholly different way than they are viewed by the state. Folk, thereby, becomes a quintessential category of participatory identity. The historian Ian McKay wrote that the notion of the folk essentializes and objectifies a community and their folklore as a categorized other, both isolated and primitive, or at least separate from the general assumptions of most. For McKay, the folk become elements of another naturalized world, and their songs, stories, and crafts become materials of study from which scholars somehow draw conclusions about the very essence of society. Imagined through the lens of the nation-state, the folk are both the mythical us, and they are the fetishized bearers of authentic and traditional truth. So the heart of what intangible cultural heritage is and who it applies to is problematic, and it's bound up in reinforcing the power of the state apparatus and its participation in global capitalism. The language of the convention mystifies this reality, and the function of UNESCO's campaign to safeguard heritage further obscures the mechanisms that centralize power within the state apparatus, the same mechanisms that displace various forms of cultural heritage in the first place. And I'll note here again that the language of the convention does not offer any overt transparency. It simply positions itself as a united front in safeguarding cultural heritage that its own participating members recognize at risk of being lost. Here, I think that the convention has good intentions to focus on community-driven projects to preserve traditions deemed at risk. To quote UNESCO's article titled Safeguarding Without Freezing, they state, there is a risk that certain elements of intangible cultural heritage could die out or disappear without help. But safeguarding does not mean fixing or freezing intangible cultural heritage in some pure or primordial form. It might be that certain forms of intangible cultural heritage, despite their economic value, are no longer considered relevant or meaningful for the community itself. As indicated in the convention, only intangible cultural heritage that is recognized by the communities as theirs and that provides them with a sense of identity and continuity is to be safeguarded. To its credit, UNESCO only places an emphasis on safeguarding based on direct community involvement, which does highlight the voices of community members in safeguarding heritage practices. Currently, the only way that the organization qualifies which intangible cultural heritage receives recognition is to create various representative lists. And one of those lists qualifies heritage deemed at risk. As a brief aside, it's interesting to note that during the 2003 convention, the representative from Norway opposed intangible heritage lists, arguing that a list-based structure would create a hierarchy of manifestations wherein the listed would be more centrally privileged than the unlisted. The representative from India argued that lists would bring more visibility and economic viability to traditions. And if handled carefully, the General Assembly could avoid creating hierarchies between recognized and unrecognized examples of heritage. The latter argument carried more weight, and we can see that currently lists are the active method for inscribing intangible cultural heritage through the convention. The goals for safeguarding intangible cultural heritage through the convention are directly in response to community disenfranchisement in post-colonial global capitalism. 
This responsive approach has the face value quality of being restorative work, and it very much can be restorative given current global socioeconomic realities. In many cases, UNESCO recognition has brought more awareness and interest to at-risk cultural practices for various communities. Still, the state-centric emphasis of these community revitalization projects center heritage safeguarding within the identity of the state. The state apparatus does not relinquish control over the communities whose traditional practices are at risk as they are disenfranchised under the state. Instead, the state recognizes at-risk traditions and then sanctions the support of modes of preserving intangible cultural heritage, drawing boundaries around traditional practice and appropriating heritage as a means of diversifying national identity. This means that safeguarding under the purview of the state is ultimately a mode of assimilation through appropriation, often operating as a state-derived mode of commodification. We should be skeptical of programs that are geared toward preservation or reclamation when they obscure or ignore the fact that the state apparatus exercises an inequitable amount of control over and profit from the program's participants, especially when the state imagines itself as the ultimate caretakers of the communities in question. Lucas Lezinsk writes extensively about these issues in his 2011 article, Selecting Heritage, the Interplay of Art, Politics, and Identity. In this article, he acknowledges, Struggles over heritage often showcase deeper underlying political issues, especially when it comes to the recognition of cultural minorities, which may or may not have political agendas. In this sense, it is important that communities have a say in every initiative that involves their heritage, so that the necessary control can be asserted by the community. Global capitalism and colonialism have transferred forward the ideology that the continued use and value of cultural heritage is expressed through its commodification. With regard to international concerns over disenfranchisement of cultural groups, this commodification is made visible through romantic fixations on folklore under the jurisdiction of nation states, with special attention given to those states deemed to be economically developing. The very way we formulate the problem is part of the problem. How the convention structures the sense of how to practice safeguarding, and subsequently what ought to be preserved, all depend on the viability and presumptions of global capitalism. In other words, nationally commodified success is equated with cultural viability. As long as the state apparatus is in primary control over the flow of goods and capital within its borders, it will remain the primary benefactors of any general campaign designed to promote cultural heritage practices. This reality is something that should be a transparent part of the discussion of cultural heritage, but it seems to be absent from UNESCO's convention on the subject. The ramifications of how intangible cultural heritage is imagined and reinforced extend beyond just state control and interaction with UNESCO. The hierarchy of nationalized cultural identities through the convention become the primary identifying factors of cross-cultural representation and exchange. This directly involves the tourist industry, for example, which promotes UNESCO-recognized intangible heritage as a defining element of national identity and encourages visitors to view local and national cultural identity through the archetypal lens of such recognized heritage practices. Tourism boards promote the images of cultural heritage, which tourists seek out and re-document in their own experiences, sharing these targeted images and reinforcing a very narrow lens of importance. 
and particularly in historically marginalized spaces, increased visibility through this narrowed lens only makes other important aspects of social life even more invisible. I've introduced just a survey of ways to engage behind the curtain of intangible cultural heritage and the shifting narratives of cultural importance. What is clear through this concept, though, is that the state apparatus receives the primary and ongoing benefits of appropriating cultural practices of various communities within its borders. Safeguarding as a concept and a practice offers proportionately small community benefits in comparison to the major state benefits following community preservation projects. Moving forward, I would ask what the ongoing benefit is in qualifying the identity of a community through specific cultural practices. Why does it continue to be necessary, specifically in areas deemed to be developing nations, to create a definition of a communal or national distinction as directed by heads of state and an international general assembly? When are we prepared to offer the same autonomy and nuance to every global community practice, sharing the resources necessary toward that end? That's our episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what I'm doing here, please visit our Patreon page and consider a donation. Patreon subscribers receive behind the scenes access to our Discord community and to development notes, as well as access to the music heard in this episode. Episode transcripts and other notes can be found at our website at ethnomedialog.com. That's E-T-H-N-O media L-O-G-U-E dot com. I'll look forward to having you back again here next time on the Ethnomedia Log. <laughs>